Welcome to the Dublin Festival of History podcast brought to you by Dublin City Council. In this episode from the 2017 festival, best-selling historian Sir Ian Kershaw, author of a magisterial biography of Hitler, discusses writing the history of 20th century Europe with UCD's Robert Gerwitz. The episode was recorded at Printworks Dublin Castle on the 1st of October 2017. Right, good evening everyone. Uh, it's my great pleasure uh, this evening to be in conversation with uh, Sir Ian Kershaw, uh, who's one of the most eminent historians of our time, uh, a historian particularly of Germany and uh, German-speaking Central Europe, but in more recent uh, years has moved on to become one of the most eminent historians of 20th century Europe as well. Uh, many of you will know him, of course, as the author of the magisterial two-volume biography of Adolf Hitler, and I'm afraid we'll have to talk a little bit about Hitler this evening. I know uh, you've left him behind you many years ago. Um, but he is now the author of a two-volume penguin history of the 20th century, 20th century Europe in particular, uh, the first volume of which came out two, two years ago? Yeah. Two years ago, uh, under the title To Helen Beck, and Ian has just completed the manuscript for the second volume, which covers the second half of the 20th century. Uh, so um, Ian and I will talk about his entire oeuvre, and at the end, we're looking forward to uh, getting some questions from you as well. Um, so Ian, let me kick off by asking you about how you became a historian of 20th century Germany, because what some people might not know is that you started your career as a medievalist uh, and also as an economic historian. So how does one move from there to Hitler? With great difficulty. Um, but uh, first of all, um, it's great to be back in Dublin, ladies and gentlemen. It's uh, been some years since I've been here. I'm delighted to be back again. And thank you for turning out on a Sunday evening in such numbers for this event. But um, to answer that question, well, um, <clears throat> I have been a, a lecturer in um, medieval history at Manchester University for six years before I made the, the move, although it wasn't, a, it wasn't a dramatic road to Damascus conversion. It took place, as you could imagine, over some time. And the, the really driving force behind it was actually um, surprising, though it may seem to you, the German language, not history as such. But um, just at the time that I started, or took up an assistant lectureship at Manchester University in 1968, they happened completely coincidentally to open a branch of the Goethe Institute, the German Language Institute in Manchester. And I thought I would go along just as a hobby uh, to learn German one hour a week, which I did um, for three years, just one hour a week just, uh, for no particular reason. And um, I just had vaguely the notion that at some time I might write a book on, on um, peasant society in the later Middle Ages and I might have to read the old thing in German. But that was about as far as any academic interest in it went. And then I got the opportunity to go to Germany on a, um, a rapid language or an intensive language course in 1972 and that it moved on from there. And the, I should say that the German teacher that we had was inspirational in the sense that she really persuaded all of us to take such an interest in Germany as a country and its history, its politics, its culture and everything else. And it was this that really, more than anything particularly historical, that drove me to this. Except that one other thing i just say, which is that um, having worked so intensively on medieval history up to that point, I was then given by my head of department at the time then um, a contract which would give me life tenure in the history department at Manchester University at the age of 67. I was 25 at the time and, and I, it was such a frightening thought that I would be then teaching medieval history for the next 40 years that I thought I have to do something else in my life beyond just doing what seemed to me increasingly to be intellectual crossword puzzles. And, and so um, there was a sort of push factor too and I decided then eventually to um, make the move to modern German history. After experiencing my, the, my time in Germany in this intensive course then uh, was just in a little place outside Munich and um, it was where I came into contact then with 
uh, with the remnants of, of Nazism um, and where I just couldn't understand how such a lovely, sleepy little place could have fallen for Hitler. And that got me going on it, really. So that was the push factor as well. So it was a pull and push, another pull factor rather, as a pull and push factor, which then led me eventually to um, make the move with mm-hmm. difficulty. Well, another interesting transition, I think, is that you started off, when you started off becoming a 20th century historian and a Germanist, um, that you started to work on social history, social movements, uh, the perception of Hitler, the creation of the Hitler myth. Um, So moving from there to biography as a genre was another major step, almost as big as moving from medieval history to 20th century history. Yes, I, I said in the, in the preface to um, the first Hitler volume, as I recall, that I came to Hitler from the wrong end, so to say, not, not as a biographer, but as a social historian. And it, it, it's true that I, I hadn't actually thought ever of writing a biography of Hitler. And I was interested in how the German population uh, responded to Hitler or reacted to him or why they found him such a mesmerizing figure or sections of German society anyway. And those were the problems that interested me rather than Hitler's biography. And um, I wrote two books then in the late 70s and early 80s on those issues on um, one book which later became called in English The Hitler Myth, which was then, which I originally did in German, but that was then became later translated into English in a modified form. And that was then looking at really how people reacted to Hitler and what they saw in him, the, the positive side, in a way, of the Hitler acclamation. And the, the other book which I wrote at the time was the, the other side of it, which was dissent. I, I prefer to call it dissent, not opposition or resistance, but various forms of dissenting behavior in the, in the Nazi era. But when I'd done those two books then, I then got interested in the whole question of why there were such divides amongst German historians about interpreting the Third Reich, which are much deeper than any of the divides that you had amongst historians generally about the about topics that I was used to dealing with in, in England. And um, that then got me into looking at the structures of Nazi rule. And that inexorably led me on to Hitler. And then Penguin asked me, would I write a biography of Hitler? And I initially said, no, there was no need for another biography of Hitler. And then I reread the two biographies by Alan Bullock and by Joachim Fess, which I thought were the two best. And I thought in my arrogance or ambition or whatever, that well, maybe there was room for another one that could improve on these two. So I decided to take it on then. And that then got me into writing a biography. But I tried in the biography to approach this in terms of seeing how Hitler was able to, how Hitler was possible in Germany and how the exercise of Hitler's power was possible. And that then blended, in a way, the biographical with the, with the social mm-hmm. framework from which I'd started. Uh, working towards the Führer is one of the key concepts, and I find it a very uh, persuasive one, in your uh, biography, particularly for the years after uh, Hitler became chancellor in Germany in January 1933. Could you very briefly explain in a nutshell, what you meant by that? Yes, uh, the term working towards the Führer, I just found in a, in, in a collection of documents on Nazi Germany, and I've been using it with students. And the more I used it, the more I thought it was an enlightening type of idea to understand how the exercise of power by Hitler was possible in Germany. And what I meant by that, initially, the, um, the person was giving us a low-level Nazi functionary, and he said, it's the duty of everybody in this new, in the state now to work towards the Führer along the lines he would wish. In other words, that, what that meant was anticipating what they thought Hitler wanted. And I used that as a, an idea to try to understand how the dynamic of this system worked, how without Hitler having to give any, any instructions or any directions or any imperatives, the radicalization of the regime would inexorably move on. And um, you can see that, that metaphor in, well, you can see it sometimes working for the Führer in a direct sense that, let's say, somebody in the, in the leadership of the SS or some other party might want to see what they thought Hitler wanted and to make something happen along those lines. But also indirectly, you could see it working right down the social ladder to the bottom of the ladder where people were indirectly doing what 
seems to be necessary without necessarily themselves trying to, um, in a direct sense, to anticipate Hitler's wishes. They had no avenue to contact with Hitler, no contact with Hitler. But nonetheless, if somebody denounced a neighbor to the Gestapo for, uh, on, on racial grounds or something like that, then indirectly, they were working towards the Fuhrer along the lines they would wish without ever having to wait for any instructions from above. So I use it as a vehicle for trying to understand the way in which that system functioned and hence to combine the functioning of the regime with the workings of Hitler himself at the top. That's mm -hmm. right. Naturally, your biography of Hitler ends in 1945, um, yet you wrote another magisterial uh, book about 1945, or the, the last year of the war, rather, um, called The End, um, which turns the focus somewhat uh, in the sense that you are much more interested in why the Germans fought until the bitter end, why there was so little resistance. Um, what would be your key answers to that question which you set yourself? Well, um, that book, incidentally, of course, was the, the wonderful title, The End, that came from Penguin, not from me on this case, but, but I, it was the end of Hitler, but it's also, for me, metaphorically, was the end of my work on the Third Reich, so it's a wonderful title for me. But, um, but it, in, in answer to your question, Robert, I mean, the, 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 at the very end of it, uh, in, in the concluding section, I do try and deal with the fact that people were still uh, and people in, in the leadership echelons of the regime were still now um, behold, felt themselves beholden to Hitler at this very time and still tied to Hitler in all sorts of ways. So I describe it as charismatic leadership without charisma. So that Hitler's personal magnetism had declined even amongst the leadership of the, of the regime. Uh, but nonetheless, for better or for worse, they were tied to Hitler and tied to this form of regime and hence had to keep up this, this notion that Hitler was the, the, the great leader who would even then manage to get Germany out of this mess. And um, so in a way, one strand of this, why Germany continued to function to the very end, was still Hitler's leadership position. A different sort of leader would have been sidelined, pushed out, dispensed with one way or the other. The system could not dispense with Hitler because it was bound up with him, it was tied to him. And if you got rid of Hitler, you got rid of the system by that stage. So in a, in a negative way by this stage, Hitler's form of personalized leadership, what I tend to call charismatic leadership, um, this personalized form of leadership was then a binding force right to the very end amongst the leadership echelons who only in the last, very last weeks of that regime started to flee and, and to find their own, try to seek safety and to find their own ways to, to um, pursue their own lives and, and leave Hitler in the lurch, but only in the very last weeks of that regime. So that was really one amongst a number of factors, which I think ultimately was the, the dominant factor as to why that regime continued to fight right to the very end. Mm -hmm. Well, your book, The End, marked the end of your personal engagement with Nazi Germany, but you didn't quite manage to get away with it because your most recent uh, book obviously uh, covers Europe uh, between 1914 and 1949. Um, and the German question does play a very significant part uh, in that book, uh, rightfully so. Um, one of the things that I noticed whilst uh, reading it is, of course, that you've shifted the endpoint uh, of the, you shifted the, both the geographical and also the chronological focus somewhat. Um, geographical in the sense that you're covering all of Europe um, extremely skillfully, but also you're moving beyond 1945, which is a caesura that obviously makes a lot of sense uh, if you're writing a history of the Second World War. Um, why did you choose 1949? Uh, I deliberated that for quite a long time as to whether to stop in 45 or 49. And you can play it either way. 45 is obviously a, a key moment, the end of the, um, the end of the actual, the end of the war in Europe in May and the end of the war in, in Asia in August. And yet, um, the more I looked at it, the more the period between 45 and 49 seemed a transitional phase, which you could see as the the end of what had been or the beginning of what was to come. And I saw both of these in, in that four years. And um, if you, what struck me was in looking at Europe immediately after the war was still what a chaotic and violent place it was. 
uh, with tens of thousands of people still being killed in parts of Europe, uh, hundreds of thousands of people being moved around like pieces on a chessboard, uh, incredibly um, chaotic scenes, a continent still in some disarray, and the disarray only gradually subsided. And it subsided in a way that by 1949, the contours of what was to come had become clear. But I chose then 1949, not as one of my German friends said, oh, how good that you've chosen 1949, the beginning of the two Germanys. I said, well, actually, I didn't choose it because of that, but because in 1949, in August of 49, you have the explosion of the first Soviet atom bomb. And all at once, you're in a bipolar nuclear world. And that sets the scene then for the, the Cold War and for the, the second half of the 20th century. Now, a second half of the 20th century lived under the shadow of nuclear, possible nuclear destruction, with nuclear power in the hands of both of the main superpowers. Mm. The title to Helen Beck is um, obviously, I think, very uh, apropos. Um, hell is much more than a metaphor. Uh, in your book, it goes uh, right through from the beginning, from the trenches of the First World War uh, to the abyss of the Holocaust. Um, and obviously, war is one of the central themes. Um, would you say that this is a period of continuous war? Would you subscribe to the idea, first articulated by Charles de Gaulle, that this is the second 30 years war? Um, how connected are these two wars? Yeah. Well, they, they obviously are connected. And um, so the, the idea of a 30 years war of the 20th century is, I think, um, in many ways, a sensible one, because without the First World War, we would almost certainly not have had the second. And there is a, a link between it. But I, I try to say somewhere there's no umbilical cord that links the two. It's, it, it's theoretically possible anyway to dissociate them and to see in the little um, period in the middle of the, for the middle of the 1920s when things are improving, it's possible to see then ways forward which could have then taken Europe in a different direction without the intervention then of the Great Depression of the early 1930s. So, um, and I think if you, if you actually looked around Europe in 1927 or 28 or something and, and said this is a continent still at war, people would have looked at you with some mystification because it looks as if it was on the way to peace. So the idea of a 30 years war as a, a sort of metaphor for a period that's dominated by war is fine. But within that, we have to understand then the, the possibilities and the potential for going in different paths, which would then, by the time you're in, by the time Hitler comes to power in 1933, we're already as good as closed off, and over the next three years, we're completely closed off. But I, I always hesitate to use that that 30 years of war of the 20th century because it so easily elides a lot of things that are happening, which are not just war. On the other hand, as I said, there is a link between them. So. Overall, I think it's, it's reasonable, as de Gaulle and many others have done, to see, to see this as an era, an era dominated by war. To that extent, the 30 years war of the 20th century is not a bad metaphor. Mm -hmm. So would you argue that in the interwar period, there was no opportunity for a lasting peace, say from 1923 onwards until 1929? Uh, that there was no possibility. Mm -hmm. and no, in that period, I think there was a possibility. I mean, when you look at the Locarno, Locarno Treaty of 1925, the uh, efforts of, of, um, of Briand and, and Stresemann to forge a way to peace, which were taking shape until, of course, Stresemann's early death in 1929. Um, Briand was then uh, ousted from power, and all at once then with the Depression, things took a turn, took a completely different turn. But over those five years, I think there were possibilities which, in a different context, without then the Wall Street crash and everything that followed it, could have developed along different lines. After all, uh, revising the Versailles Treaty, although most Germans wanted to revise the Versailles Treaty, not many wanted to revise it along the lines that Hitler eventually did revise it by overthrowing it altogether by violence. Mm -hmm. So there were distinct possibilities there which then were blocked off by the, uh, by the depression and by the political consequences of the depression. Mm. One of the, the great things about the um, architecture of the book is that it allows you, because of the enlarged chronological scope, to compare the two 
post-war periods, the two periods of transition from total war to peace. Um, and obviously, one has to say that the second post-war period after 1945 was much more successful in terms of containing the furies of war than the first. Uh, and this is something that you're discussing in a kind of diachronic comparison at the end of the book. Um, can you tell us very briefly why you think that the second post-war period was so much more successful uh, than the first? Well, I think the, the short answer is that policymakers actually learnt many of the lessons that's a bedeviled, bedeviled Europe in the interwar period and led to a Second World War. Um, in this book, I try to work with um, what I call a matrix of catastrophe to start off with, the reasons why after the First World War, a Second World War was likely. It wasn't inevitable, but it was likely. And um, the four points there that I have, I mean, very tersely, were then the... Um, the great uh, enhancement of, of uh, ethnic conflict, the uh, accentuation of, of border conflicts, the increasing class conflict now linked to Bolshevism and an alternative system of government in Russia, in the Soviet Union, and fourthly then, uh, a lasting twofold crisis of capitalism. And the four things together, because they're not, it's not the separate things that interest me, but the, com the combination of these four elements seems to me to make up this, what I call this matrix of catastrophe. And that, that each of these elements had its most extreme form in Germany. So it's not just by chance that Germany is the epicenter of the problems that really confront Europe in this interwar period and, and link the two wars together. But then after the, at the end of the Second World War, you have a completely different matrix, which I for might call the matrix of recovery, which is first of all the complete destruction of Germany. Unlike 1918, you now have the total destruction of Germany as a nation state and the destruction of all its military prowess and its military ambitions and its ambitions for territorial conquest. They're all finished. Uh, and that's the absolute prerequisite for anything else. You also have, through the conquests of the Red Army uh, of much of, most of Eastern Europe, Central and Eastern Europe, you have again now a complete reordering of that area. And that was the area which caused the most trouble in the interwar period, the, period, the area of greatest destabilization and disturbance in the interwar period is now stabilized through the yoke of Soviet power. And um, the border changes are made, populations are shifted around, ethnic cleansing takes place. On a moral level, this is horrendous, but on a political level, what it does under the, the um, heavy hand of Soviet uh, power is actually to stabilize that part, that troublesome part of Europe. Thirdly, you have then, um, following the, the uh, Second World War, complete in contrast to the First War again, nationalism now being sub subordinated to the interests of the two superpowers in the West of the USA and the East of the Soviet Union. Um, fourthly, you've got the, uh, and that's of course a critical comparison with the First World War, at the end of the First World War, where after the end of the First World War, you have rampant inflation, right? People know about the German inflation, but if you look at Poland or Austria, then it's much the same. So you have this incredible, spiral of hyperinflation, at the end of the Second World War, you have incredible economic recovery. And that economic recovery, which is global actually, it's partly produced by the, the war itself, by the, the upshot of the war. But this, this, the, the economic recovery, the global growth that you have, enables then the basis of democratic consolidation stability to be created. And um, that then in, uh, allows over the next years then uh, a different type of stabilization of politics of the sort that you never got in the interwar period, which is so disturbed by these economic crises. And then finally, of course, you have in this matrix of recovery, uh, at the points I've already alluded to, um, the fact that both of the superpowers now have, have um, atom bombs and soon they have hydrogen bombs. So um, mutually assured destruction, although the term only comes in, I think about 1960, but increasingly, of course, it's obvious that each of these powers can blow the other one to smithereens or blow the world, Europe to smithereens. And so in a sort of negative way, the possession of nuclear weapons itself adds to the stabilization of, of the continent. Didn't quite seem like that in the 1950s, but that's what was happening. So the, the five things together, uh, 
point to a completely different outcome. And when I said they learned the lessons, they learned them in terms of democratic politics in the West, in terms of communist politics in the East, and they learned them in economic terms in the sense that the Bretton Woods Conference of 1944, they consciously looked at the economic mistakes that they made after the end of the First World War and attempted to reconstitute the post-war economy along entirely different lines, uh, which then really worked very satisfactorily indeed until the 1970s when things changed drastically. Mm -hmm. and would you argue that part of the solution after 1945 was obviously the, the ethnic expulsion of, of Germans from East Central Europe? Um, and some historians have made the argument that this contributed to the stabilization of the region because one of the key problems of the interwar period, irredentism, uh, for example, was contained by doing that. Would you subscribe? Yes, I, I, I think that's right. Um, the, but it wasn't just the expulsion of Germans. I mean, when you look at the, the shifting around of vast numbers of Ukrainians and Poles and uh, Hungarians and so on, I mean, there are, there's a lot of uh, shifting around of population. So much of the irredentism was actually ended by the, by the, the might of, the, of, the, of Soviet conquest. And... Um, the, it removed a lot of these issues which had been so poisonous for Europe in the Central Europe in particular in the, in the 1920s and 1930s and all at once those were ended and ethnic cleansing although the term is much later of course but ethnic cleansing was so horrendous uh, as it is was actually something which if you look at Europe across the entirety of the 20th century is happening more as everywhere so nearly everywhere not everywhere Yugoslavia is different but nearly everywhere was more ethnically homogeneous by the end of the 20th century than it was at the beginning. And, you know, you look at somewhere like Poland, which uh, had so many different ethnic groups in it and so on, and increasingly became Polish and, and with, with not much else. And, and these, these things are, are happening across Europe. And so that type of um, that terrible um, imposition of, of simply by power politics of shifting borders and shifting populations around did actually help to stabilize it, not just the German mm. expulsions. Thanks, Ian. Mm. Can you tell us a little bit about how you work as a historian? I mean, obviously, um, writing a history of the 20th century forces you to make choices. Um, what areas to cover, what themes to cover, what to omit. Um, so for this particular book, which, uh, for those of you who don't know, the Penguin uh, History uh, Series is narrative analysis. Uh, it's, it's about, it's, it doesn't contain footnotes, which must have been difficult mm. for an author who's used to writing books that contain one third of uh, notes. Um, and it obviously, yeah, as I said, it forces you to make omissions. So how did you pick your themes? How did you work as a historian? I think the only way I saw possible was to, uh, well, I, let me preface that by saying that what I wanted to do was, in contrast to some other works of the, on the 20th century, was to develop this story along um, a narrative line with thematic subsections, so that each chapter covers a very limited uh, period, which has subsections within it on what seem to me to be the salient themes. So that is already in, inroad into explaining how I decided to do it because what I wanted to do was to bring across the dramatic developments in this in this period that not just to deal with thematic treatment such as demographic change or something important <coughs> though that is but rather to see sometimes for, through citing um, eyewitness testimony to see how they how they themselves were experiencing this drama and the narrative of the short periods enables me to do that and once you've done that, then my, my technique was always then to, to, to look to a particular period and see what is actually the, the leading characteristic of this period. Let me take one, which just comes to mind, but maybe because you've done so much work on it, Robert, but the period immediately following the First World War, or the, say, period between 1918 and 1923, it's one chapter in this book, which I, I call Turbulent Peace. And the turbulent piece then deals with a number of things about how people respond to the end of the First World War um, in political terms, in, in economic terms, in social terms, and in cultural terms. And that, in that period then, when you look at it, it ends in 1923. Why does it end then? Because 
uh, the great inflation, the hyperinflation is brought to an end then, especially in Germany, but uh, elsewhere too, by economic changes, gr new growth begins in the economy, but also politically, uh, the Hitler putsch at the end of 1923 brings together the period of mega turbulence in German politics. And the, this uh, period of ultra-radicalization in Europe, then left and right, starts to settle down at that point. So there's something to be said for that chronological period. Once you're into that chronological period, then you start thinking, what are the main things that happened then? Well, one is actually, for instance, the, um, the Bolshevik, the civil war in Russia, because the war didn't just end in Russia, but then went straight on into the civil war in which the, the number of deaths were greater than in the, greater than in the war itself, the first war itself. And you look at then um, the way in which people responded to the, the peace of 1918, and many people then responded to it saying, never again, we must now disarm and look for peace and so on. Peace movements grew up, but also um, other sections of society then said, the war isn't finished now, we, we want to carry on this, and we want, and the stuff that you've worked on so much on paramilitary, um, uh, the paramilitaries now who see war itself as, uh, as a great glory, on an end in itself, and they want to then uh, carry on and, and, and destroy Bolsheviks and destroy Jews and so on. And also then the rise of fascism in Italy, rises in Italy, but um, and other places are disturbed. So the rise of fascism, again, another subsection of that particular chapter. But then democracy survives in most places, including Germany. So you have to explain that. So I try to pose questions about why fascism, but only in Italy, why democracy survives and so on. So that's my technique, really, in that particular chapter, but throughout, to look at a, uh, the salience of, of crucial developments in a particular chronological period and try to explain them, and then move on to the next uh, chronological period and see what is developing there. And I've carried on that in the second mm -hmm. of these volumes too, more or less the same technique. And extremely well. I warmly recommend it to all of you who haven't uh, read it yet. Um, Moving from hell to back, um, and maybe you can give us a, a brief synopsis of the work that you have just completed, which is not published yet, will be published uh, next year, I understand, uh, by Penguin. Um, but just for me and our audience, how does the story end? Well, it, 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 <laughs> it ends in, in a much less positive way than this one ends. This one ends on, on an upbeat then, to, to hell and back, and uh, the back is only one chapter in this, really. Uh, but the, the back is, of course, then the, the uh, entree into this period of, of great um, prosperity, relatively speaking, great prosperity in the 1970s and 1950s and 1970s. Um, and... Um, and when this book is ending, it, it's looking as if things are improving. The end of this second volume is uh, distinctly contrary picture to that, I think. We all know the problems that we're faced with in today's Europe. And um, so it's a very um, ambivalent, not to say somewhat gloomy, end to this book. And uh, the final chapter of this book, uh, it, Although we're speaking about it as a history of the 20th century, this book goes right up to the present, the second volume goes right up to the present day. So 1950 to 2017. So it ends with, with Brexit and with um, even in the conclusion with Trump and Macron and uh, from Merkel and the recent election and so on. So right up to, up to date, up to date now that is. Um, and uh, that's of course dangerous for a historian to write something that goes smack bang up to the present because the present will, by the time the book comes out, will have moved on itself. So I've been, I've tried to be cautious to make the book not out of date before it's in print. Um, but, uh, but in the final section of the conclusion, I do have some, um, some ways of looking at long-term developments, that long-term problems that face Europe and face much of the rest of the world as well because the problems that we're faced with today are, um, as everybody knows, the problems of the global problems, problems of globalization, problems of technological change, and problems of um, identity politics and the way in which this is affecting our societies. And all these things fit into this, this final volume, the second volume, rather not final, it is final, the second volume, uh, which is then looking at how all these things interact between 1950 and the present day, how Europe becomes much more globalized, 
how it's affected by things way beyond its shores, of course, in far more extreme fashion than was the case before the um, era of the two world wars. And um, how this, as uh, how uh, globalization is a very Janus-faced affair, a very two-sided affair, very positive aspects, but also negative aspects which are facing us. And we all know some of the major problems that, that we're going to have to deal with in the years and decades to come, uh, which the book therefore ends by looking at how Europe is well equipped to do, how well Europe is equipped to do with these. And, and my short answer is not all that well, really. So um, there is, the book ends on a somewhat ambivalent or maybe even somewhat depressing note compared with this one. Anyway. <laughs> you may have to publish an updated version every year for the final chapter. Well, that's, that, that, those are events. And of course, events change. But, but I, I've, I've attempted in the concluding section to deal with um, the the explanation of how things have, have taken the shape they have since 1950, but then to look at the the transient sort of politics that we're faced with now, which will, of course, change in the next 12 months before the book is out or something, um, and say, well, those go up and down and you can't, no historian can forecast what the future is. It's not the job of the historian to do that. But from the long-term developments, then you can extrapolate a number of things which are possibilities, I put it on more strongly than that, maybe probabilities, and see how well or inadequately we are debt we are structured to deal with those issues and that's what i so in the third section of the conclusion these long-term issues i think won't necessitate me writing another, another update every year <laughs> anyway um unlike the book covering 1914 to 1949 where obviously the strong theme is the tension between war and peace more war than peace arguably um you have a multitude of themes for the second half of the 20th century. Um, sort of coming back to an earlier question, how did you decide on what subjects, themes you wanted to cover? In, in many ways, these themes, as soon as you start to um, break the, uh, the conglomerate down into component parts, disaggregate it, the themes do tend to suggest themselves. Of course, there are lots of themes that ev every historian has to make choices. And uh, you could write a book which focuses on different things, and, and that's naturally enough. But, but there are certain um, developments and trends which would have to figure in any book of this sort. And the question is then how you really deal with those. So um, uh, obviously then you have to deal with, for instance, with the, the Cold War. Um, I've tried to do that not just by dealing with the events of the core, but seeing how people responded to the, the threat of nuclear weapons, or nuclear destruction, rather. And um, so that, that gives me the, the matter for one chapter. But then you've got then the, the question of the making of Western Europe. Western Europe and Eastern Europe at the time are simply constructs. Uh, when you think that Turkey was counted as part of Western Europe, then obviously geographically it's nonsense. But Turkey was, because it was in NATO from 1952 and part of the Western entity in that regard. So here you, you've got them. So I've got the making of Western Europe. And that then means that you've got to look at how this notion of Western Europe takes shape in different countries. But then also the, the next chapter, I deal with Eastern Europe. And there the, the question is, we tend to lump Eastern Europe together. So that's the Soviet bloc and tend to homogenize it. You wouldn't tend to homogenize Western Europe to the same extent. You'd think that Spain and Germany were different countries with different trajectories. But in Eastern Europe, it's amazing how we tend to think of the Soviet Union dominates and, and therefore Poland, Romania, uh, Hungary, they're all much the same. What, one of my jobs in this chapter is actually to disaggregate that and to show the different developments in these different countries and also how different those countries are from the history of the Soviet Union itself. And I use there another metaphor, um, which very often it's spoken of, the, the uh, Eastern Europe is spoken about in the time after Stalin, uh, Stalin's death in 1953, spoken of as the time of the Thor under Khrushchev and so on. And I use a different metaphor, I call it the clamp, because it seems to me that the clamp better describes that system that you have one which is where the clamp can be loosened or tightened, but the thing to which the clamp is attached remains essentially the same. And so it did until 
the 1980s and Gorbachev loosened it then completely until the clamp broke. So that, that gives me the sort of framework for dealing with chapter three. Then, of course, I've got the, the period of the economic growth and what that meant in terms of um, consumerism, in terms of benefits for everybody. You've never had it so good, as Prime Minister Macmillan said in the 1950s. Everywhere you look, um, there's, there's material improvement. And so so I, I explore that and the reasons for it and so on. And, a chapter, therefore, called Good Times, which is the, the, the times of the 50s and 60s down to the 1970s. I have to look at the cultural development of after, culture after the catastrophe. So that's another section. And these things then tend to provide their own points where you say, well, I have to deal with that and I must deal with that. And that's crucial. That's less crucial. And then we went to the, the 1968 student revolt. The first time now you're seeing then challenges to this, this system. Challenges in Eastern Europe, in Czechoslovakia as well, with the Prague Spring, as well as in Western Europe. And then the next chapter, which is, I think the seventh in the book, then goes on to what I call the term, which is the 1970s. Um, many of you, like me, will have lived through the 70s and remember it. But what I don't remember, and that's interesting from a point of view of a sort of eyewitness to these events, is that you don't really quite perceive what is going on around you always. And um, until I worked on this, I wasn't really as, as sure as I am now of the 1970s as actually the turning point in the, in the post-war era. Of course, there are plenty of other turning points, 1990, a big political turning point, but the 1970s changed the contours, the period of growth and of the, um, which enabled the welfare state to, to grow so easily in every country practically was over. And all sorts of changes set in the 1970s that we still see the consequences of today. Uh, economic changes above all, and the 1990s, obviously, you know, I have to deal with with the reasons for the um, collapse of communism, and um, the then the impact of 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 that after 1990 on different countries, and so I call the chapter there troubled transition because we tend to think of that well, communism is gone now, so everything was great. You start to disaggregate it, look at it. Look at Eastern Europe and things were far from rosy and terrible times of, of, of trying to adjust to that, but different in the different countries. And so as soon as you start to do these things with disaggregation, the themes suggest themselves, but so the complexities, because every time I came up with a generalization, some country or other would get in the way and you have to modify the generalization. And then right on to the, um, the period after 2001, after the, um, the 9-11 and, and the way in which then global terrorism comes on the scene in a big way. And then right into the period from the finance crash of 2008, right down to Brexit and its aftermath, which is the, which is the last chapter of the book, which I call crisis years. So um, in this, you, in the crisis years, then you've got different, form, different elements of crisis, the economic crisis, the um, the um, migration crisis, the terrorism crisis, and so on. So as soon as you start to look at what's the salient point about a particular chronological slab, like that 2008 to 2017, you start to see themes that suggest themselves and other things then become more subordinate to it. Mm -hmm. So that's really how I've worked. Excellent synopsis, thanks. <laughs> um, before I open up the conversation and take a couple of questions uh, from the audience, um, a final quick one from me. Uh, given that you have reinvented yourself as a historian over time and also worked in very different formats from biography to social history uh, to narrative analysis of, of, of the entire 20th century, uh, what's next? Oh, a long period of rest. <laughs> um, maybe nothing. Who knows? I mean, uh, it's, it's always the question that uh, I remember um, I just finished this um, two-volume Hitler biography and... Uh, uh, it would take me quite some years to write, and, um, and uh, I, I was just breathing out that I got this. And I had to give a, a, a talk, a, almost a spontaneous talk, on, in, in Frankfurt at the book fair. And, and I was facing this question, so um, after, after two volumes of Hitler, which are you know, like 2,000 pages or something, what, what are you doing now? So I said, and I, I just almost came up with a very flippant answer. I said, after Hitler volumes one and volume two comes Hitler volume three, the Argentinian years, life after the bomb. <laughs> <laughs> but, um, so I, I really don't know what comes next. I'll just wait and see for a bit. It's an excellent note for us uh, to end on. Uh, are there any questions? Yes, uh, we're talking about Hitler. I was just wondering about 
Where's the body? Do the Soviets have it? Hitler's body? It remains actually a mystery, but the, uh, the Soviets claim to have found it. Uh, whether they did or not is not absolutely certain. Um, basically, it was happening in the, in the garden of the Reich Chancellor in Berlin. There were, there were um, where Hitler's body was, was rapidly cremated. Uh, the um, bombs and shells were raining down all the time, so uh, lots of bodies were strewn around there. And whether they actually found intact the bodies of Hitler and Eva Braun is a moot point. The Soviets claimed at a much later stage that they had done and that they were eventually buried under a car park in Magdeburg. But whether they actually really buried those bodies is, is not clear. And it's at least possible that they found only parts of the body. They certainly did find parts of the body because they, they found uh, Hitler, parts of Hitler's jawbone authenticated by his dentist, which were then uh, delivered to Stalin in a cigar box. Um, but whether um, they found the complete bodies is, is really not known, and um, much of what came out later was Soviet propaganda, but for a while it seems pretty certain that the Soviets themselves were very unsure that they had found Hitler's body. I think, yeah, it does. So given the fact that, um, especially given the fact that you are both an, an economic, you were both an economic and social historian before shifting to your work on Hitler and Nazi Germany, um, I, was, I was wondering what you think, whether you thought that um, the, um, the conflict between market economy and democracy contributed to, to create the state of crisis which the National Socialists sort of um, used uh, to, to seize power. So basically, whether there was a conflict between economic liberalism and the democratic Weimar constitution and that sort of yeah, gave an opportunity, sort of created the conditions for the National Socialists to rise to power, yeah. That's a very, um, very interesting and very deep question. Um, in, a way, the, in a way, the answer is yes, but the, but the problem is that it's, in a different way, it's easier to see that tension, curiously enough, today, because we have a much more prolonged period of economic stability compared with what you had in the 1920s and early 1930s. Because the thing was so turbulent in economic terms, it's hard to see a particular system setting in which, which then uh, prevented uh, democracy from being consolidated or ran counter to it. But obviously, in, in, in a sense, it did in the, in the way in which countries were left to their own devices, the market rules essentially were, were what determined economic policy in the, in the um, 1920s and early 1930s. Countries were left to their own devices in a way which they haven't been uh, since the beginnings of what turned into the European Union. And um, that, that meant that, of course, that a, a country that was faced with extraordinary um, economic problems, such as Germany was in the early 1920s and then different ones, but even deeper problems in the early 1930s, uh, did find itself in a position where trying to solve those economic problems with uh, a still fragile democracy was as good as impossible. And so what you have is then the erosion of democracy in Germany in the early 1930s before Hitler is able to come to power. So the first element in that is actually the, the collapse of democracy because of, the, as you implying that because of the economic difficulties uh, and then secondly then Hitler's takeover of power which then is made possible through the erosion of democracy to start off with. So um, the economic problems were certainly incompatible with the survival of liberal democracy in the way that it was that it functioned in Germany at that time. A <clears throat> hundred years on I'm just wondering what your retrospective view of Woodrow Wilson would be uh, and whether the self-determination for small nations was really such a good idea, and it wouldn't have been better to have kept the Austro-Hungarian Empire and maybe even a revitalized Ottoman Empire. I think at the, t I think at the time there was no uh, real option but to um, work a lot. I mean, what Woodrow Wilson did then was to enshrine what was happening on the ground in terms of these principles of self-determination, etc. So. 
If you look at uh, Poland or Czechoslovakia and other countries too at that time then, which became independent countries, the pressures were already there in the, set, in the latter phase of the war, which would have been unsustainable in any lengthy period of time if Woodrow Wilson had wanted to prop up the Austro-Hungarian Empire, he wouldn't have been able to do so. So I think, um, in a way, it was inevitable that that would be that path would be taken. The problem was that in, in using the terms like self-determination, which was he never defined very clearly. In using terms like that, it did awaken the suggestion that every ethnic group could have its own right to its own state form format, which was plainly impossible in the context of the ethnic mix of Central Europe. And therefore, you had in practically every country of Central Europe major minority elements there which were which would not accept the um, the ruling of self-determination of the majority and so the ethnic um, the ethnic problems or the enhanced ethnic problems were actually prefigured in that elements of self-determination in the in the vain attempts of the uh, of the um, great powers at the Versailles um, conflict the Versailles treaty to settle these problems, which are impossible to settle. And um, so uh, without being apologetic about the work that the, 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 the great powers did then, no solution uh, would have been feasible to prevent then ethnic trouble um, breaking up. And, and to try to prop up these, these failing empires would have been a total impossibility. Uh, you mentioned the years 1945 to 1949 as shaping modern Europe in the sense of creating a bipolar world. Um, those years, of course, also saw the beginning of the end of European imperialism, for example, in India and also in this country. I wonder uh, what you thought, how much of an impact that made on the face of Europe itself in the latter half of the 20th century in shaping the Europe we live in today. Um, it, it plays only... Um a subordinate role in this first volume, I have to say, that um, it, it's, uh, in retrospect, maybe I could have developed the imperialism theme more than I did. Um, but it, I do refer to it on numerous, not in several parts of the book, but I don't deal with it as a separate theme. In the second volume, I deal with anti, um, with, with decolonization in a, a separate section. And there, of course, that, that is now, um, by the time you're into the 19, um, well, at the aftermath of the Second World War, decolonization becomes an issue in many parts of what's above all the British and the French empires, but also the, the Dutch empire, the Belgian empire, and so on, to a lesser extent, the smaller empires. Um, and that is a, a very important theme that's already building up in the late 1940s, the, the quest for independence and autonomy. And then by the time you're into the 1950s, with, in the British case, with the, the Suez Crisis of 1956, which is then effectively the end of British imperialist ambitions, and, the, um, and then the rapid unrolling of, of, um, of decolonization in, in the British Empire and the French Empire in the immediate years that follow, right down to the 1960s. So by the time you get to the 1970s, Basically, you've, apart from remnants, you've only got really the Portuguese empire that's still uh, still around, and even that then is, is struggling massively to survive and soon doesn't survive. So decolonization becomes a very important theme in the post-war period, and that uh, quest for independence is now uh, bringing about, of course, enormous problems in different ways for Britain, and for France, France especially with the Algerian conflict of 1954 to 62, uh, but Britain too, you know, as the, 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 uh, the old saying that it lost an empire and didn't find a role. And um, so that is, that is a, a, a crucial development that takes place uh, after, the, after the Second World War and where the, the Second World War is the, in a sense then, brings about this, as you see in the case of India in 1947, or it brings about the, the tendencies that are already present during the war and then provides them with the, the framework then, with the British and the French both weakened then, but framework then to push these things through. And what's interesting is that in the, in the immediate post-war period, both Britain and France actually see the continuation of their empires as what they fought the war for. So neither of them think about giving up the empire, and it, it rapidly comes to them in the course of the, the 1950s and early 60s that that's what they've got to do. 
Now we have time for one more question. I think the gentleman over there has waited very patiently. As a historian, where do you see your role today? Do you see it as um, a recorder of events or as a commentator on current events in the light of the history that you would have co covered? Well, I was just saying to Robert before we came in here that uh, how by the time I got to the last chapter, I'd run out of any history books to consult. Um, they, so basically, I'm, I'm having to deal with uh, with political science, economics, and journalistic accounts, effectively newspaper accounts of things that are happening. Uh, to cut a long story short, so those uh, that is a difficult chapter to write, but um, it, it, it's too early for historians to be able to write um, full accounts of it. So that has to, by, by that stage, I'm moving on in a way to, from the role of historian to be that of a political commentator, I suppose it's inevitable. But I wanted to nonetheless to write some contemporary history. I thought it the duty of a contemporary historian to write, not to cop out by stopping in 1990 or, or 2000 or something, but actually to take the story on and deal with it in the most recent past. Do you, see, do you see it as a warning from history? Did you write it as a warning from history, history repeating itself? Um, I was once involved in a TV programme called The Nazis A Warning From History, and I remember posing the question to the producer, what exactly is this warning? Because I think if you're not careful, you draw far too simple warnings from history. And so I've tried to avoid that, but what you obviously you see in today's world with the rise of racism again, rise of xenophobia, rise of nationalism again, you can't but help to see uh, the shadows of the past being cast over the present. And obviously I have to deal with those and yet deal with them in a very different context. And, and if, it's, if it's any consolation um, in this, I think things have moved on. So simple comparisons between now and then, saying are we returning to the 1930s? No, we're not, because things have moved on to such an extent. So we've got there's no need for complacency at all. We're in, a, very, we're in a, a worrying situation, but it's not going back to the situation of the 1930s. When you think of it, just make these points very, in one sentence each, but we live in civilian societies, not military-dominated societies now. We live in a, a continent of democracies, even if it's flaking at the edges in places like Poland and, and, um, and Hungary. Uh, we live in a society where we've learned in many ways to co cooperate with each other through the European Union with all its frailties and failings and all the rest of it, but cooperation and working with each other, not resorting to aggression and military, um, military prowess has been uh, a characteristic of the second half of the 20th century. And finally, but not least, we have right at the center of Europe, despite the rise of this uh, neo-right party, you know, the new right party in Germany, the alternative for Germany party. We have nonetheless in Germany now, uh, right in the center of Europe, a bulwark of, of uh, peace and of uh, humanity and, and civilization, a total contrast with the Germany of the 19, 1930s and 1940s. So there is actually, I think, with all the, the gloom that we might want to paint about today's Europe, a difference between the Europe of that time, and we've come a long way since then, and I think there's still still hope that we will get through these present-day crises and surmount them in a way, different way to the collapse into catastrophe of the 1940s. You know, I've been told by the management to accept one more question, uh, but it will be the last. Uh... Sorry to bring you back to Hitler. I, I was very interested to hear your opinion, if you chose to give it, on the works of David Irving, with the, not so much the recent movie in mind, but the books of uh, Deborah Lipstadt and Richard Evans that revealed the depth of historical f fakery that he um, uh, resorted to in, in much of his work, but you might care to pass on it. Um, I'm not quite sure what you're inviting me to say. Uh, ju just an opinion on, on the, the writings of David Irving, uh, Hitler's War, the uh, other recent books that have been, let's say, exposed by the recent works and uh, the movie, of course. Thing had um, one advantage in the 1960s and 70s that most other historians of, of Hitler and of that period didn't have, which is that because of his own right-wing leanings, he knew lots of Nazi widows who were prepared to give him documents and diaries and all sorts of accounts. And I used all this stuff when I was working on the Hitler biography. I worked in this, the 
Institut für Zeitgeschichte in Munich, Institute of Contemporary History, and they had all the Irving papers there, and they were very shy about having them. They didn't want to tell people, but I, because I knew the people there, I got access to them all. And I use all this stuff, and I, uh, some of it is very useful indeed. And Irving's early works, where some of his stuff was already, as Richard Evans points out, his early stuff on, on the bombing of Dresden, for example, he refused to correct the figures even when they were shown to be simply Goebbels' propaganda uh, death toll, 10 times the real death toll in, in Dresden. Um, so there were tendentious elements there, but some of his earliest stuff, nonetheless, brought things together which were still useful for other historians. Uh, what I found really difficult was trying to track down some of his sources. And um, uh, where I did it was, uh, it, it was very, sometimes very awkward to find precisely what they were. But nonetheless, these, these early things did, did actually go some way. But in the, by the 1970s when he wrote Hitler's War, if you've read that book, you will see that in that book, one of, the, one of the key sectors, of course, is where he then basically says that Hitler knew nothing about the, the final solution. It was all down to Himmler and so on. And that, I think, is where Irving then finally nailed his course to the mast, in a way. And once he was then taken to task by historians for this and, and pushed into a corner, I think he became more extreme in his views about this and more, more forthright in his in his. Uh, denial of Hitler's responsibility for the Holocaust and his, um, his praise for Hitler in, in many ways too. So he became a more extreme right-wing historian, but the, of course the, the roots of this are there right from the beginning. You can see it. I still think if you, as I said, if you use that early stuff with care, then there's still some very useful material in there. Um, but it becomes more and more tendentious as the time goes on and, uh, and he becomes more and more extreme in his views. Great. Thank you so much, Ian, for answering all these questions, including mine. Uh, I'd like to uh, conclude this session uh, with yet another round of applause. Thank you very much for coming together. Thank you for listening to this podcast from the Dublin Festival of History, brought to you by Dublin City Council. You can find out more about the festival on dublinfestivalofhistory.ie and by following us on Twitter, where we're at HistFest.